while you're still standing. Let's read our text today. I think that's perfect timing. Thank you, Brother David. Thank you, choir, for helping us focus on the Lord, the center of our worship. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, this is your word. And we know across the landscape of the U.S. and the world and, and even our church family, uh, we are not above unbelief. Lord, it happened in the past. It happens all the time. We see people who abandon the faith. They do not enter, enter spiritual rest because of unbelief. Lord, this text is designed to help all of us evaluate where we are spiritually, to ask the question, do we have spiritual rest in Jesus? And are we working at rest in you, through your word, perseverance of the saints? Lord, help us all today to grasp the magnitude of this passage. And Lord, instill in us holy reverence and fear to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Some of you perhaps have been locked to the TV lately watching the Little League World Series. We kind of tune it in if you're a sports fan. and I'm not one to watch every one of them, but there's some amazing stories that come out of them. But a few years ago, a story came out of collegiate girls softball that was pretty interesting. Uh, and I think it's... Uh, Something we should think about in regard to our passage of Scripture. In a Division II girls softball tournament, you had Central Washington that was playing Western Oregon. First time ever that either team had made it to the Division tournament. A senior named Sarah Nikoski gets up to bat. It would be her last collegiate softball game. She was a senior, and she was five foot two, And she gets up and hits her first college home run. As she rounds first base, she realizes that she had missed the bag. And you got to touch every base. And you got to touch home plate, of course. And in her excitement, she misses first base and begins to turn around to go back and tears her ACL and falls to the ground. Well, the rules prohibit her teammates from touching her until she crosses home plate. This is not church league softball down at the park, right? If we hit one over the fence, we just run back to the dugout, right? 
But in an unbelievable display of sportsmanship and character, the first baseman on the opposing team and the shortstop, they go over to her and pick her up, and they help her in her journey back to first base, second, third, and on to home plate. Man, that's an amazing story, isn't it? Now, if it would have been a guy's game, we'd have said, tough luck, dude. Just lay there, right? But think about that. She faced not being able to cross home plate, and they made sure that she crossed home plate and scored the run. Now, our passage today is about crossing home plate. But I want to tell you this is a whole lot more serious than a girl's softball game or a boy's softball game or any game of life for that matter. And this text is about encouraging us all the more, even to remind you in fear that there is the propensity for us to have believed, thinking we believed, but in actuality it ends up being unbelief. That's a serious thing, isn't it? It is serious. This is a reality that's far more serious than a softball tournament. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's a whole lot more serious than anything you could ever imagine in life. Every generation of Christian faces theological crises. Do you all know that? Every generation And if we're going to maintain theological purity and preach true gospel proclamation, we must stick to what the Bible says, not what our personal opinions are. If we get the gospel wrong, the results are spiritual death. The writer to the Hebrews knew this. They knew it. Notice verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Did y'all know in the Old Testament they got the same good news that you got? Boy, we forget that, don't we? Do y'all ever read your Bibles? Did you know that the writer of Hebrews was totally aware that there were misconceptions and misunderstandings about the person and work of Christ? So he categorically takes the Old Testament Scriptures to prove to them that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the great and only High Priest. Remember, He's greater than Moses. You may preach all of Hebrews, you don't want that to happen. But He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than David. And so, here we understand that the good news was preached to them. And how were the Old Testament saints saved? Just like you are. Believing the truth concerning the promises of God. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That will be unfolded more as you go through the book of Hebrews. But we need to be clear that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only means by which sinners can be saved. And this is what's highlighted in this text. He recognized the misconceptions they had. He realized that they were in a theological crisis because some of them had seemingly professed Christ, moved away from thinking they were justified by the law, Seemingly resting from their works, if you read on in chapter 4, we rest from our works just like God did. Why? Because we understand we're not saved by works but by grace. And so he understood this. So the writer is encouraging us. Uh, He's encouraging the readers. He's giving them an example of how some fail to enter that spiritual rest. 
He turns his attention in verse 11 to the theme of rest again and demonstrates how Christ is the foundation for spiritual rest. This is an earnest plea. It is urgent. He's careful, uh, led by the Holy Spirit of God, to present this tight case concerning God's rest. Now, the verse says that if we are not diligent to enter God's rest, then we are following, following an example of disobedience. All right, congregation, whose example are we following? Well, Hebrews 4 tells us, entering God's rest in the Old Testament, pointing to the people of Israel entering the promised land, or the land of promise. The land, however, was much more than just a piece of territory. It was much more than just a piece of real estate. The land was indicative to God's promise to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis, and it signified how our great God's plan to restore creation after the fall and corruption was in motion. God was working to heal. Thus, entering the promised land meant entering and enjoying God's salvation and inhabiting the place where the Lord God Almighty dwelt. Don't you want to get there one day? Is that not where you want to be? Notice with me chapter 3 verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of, say it, unbelief. A failure to trust. Their failure to trust kept them out of God's rest. And ladies and gentlemen, this morning I want to be clear to you. Unbelief will keep you out of God's rest today. We're talking about resting in Jesus. Unbelief will keep you out of God's rest. What they failed to trust, notice the text, was the good news. The Word of God that was preached to them in the wilderness. What did God tell them over and over and over again? He gives them promises that He would secure the land for them. That He would care for them. That He would give them victory. That He would forgive, notice that, them and be merciful to them. But they did not believe God. What did they do? They actually murmured against Him. And they preferred to go back to Egypt. Make sure you have verse 11 in your mind before we embark upon verse 12. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then he starts talking about the word of God. So, notice in the middle of the verse that concept. The concept of the Word. They failed, back in verse 2, to listen to the good news, the message, the Word. And according to verse 11, they're urged to listen to the Lord, not be disobedient. Beginning in verse 12, for the Word. So the Word they heard did not profit them because it was not met with faith. What that means is there were only two people that had faith that day to enter the land. And who were they? Joshua and Caleb. No one else's faith united with theirs. Even though Joshua and Caleb said, and you may say, well, I thought that text meant individual faith that each had. No. If you read on down in Hebrews 4, the writer will even talk about Joshua. So the, the real rendering of that verse is that just as Joshua and Caleb saw the land, went in and saw it. Yeah, there are giants there, Lord, but you told us it was our land. And they went believing God. And they said to the people, go with us. But the people refused. And they did not enter God's rest because of unbelief. So verse 11 urges, therefore, to be diligent to hear the word. To hear that good news. To embrace it. To hold on to it. To be satisfied by it. So that you don't forsake God and return to the Egypt of unbelief. 
What a strong acknowledgement for all of us. You know what the aim of life, according to the book of Hebrews, is? It's to enter God's rest. That's the aim of the book of Hebrews. I've done funeral after funeral after funeral lately. In Ozark, in Springfield, in Georgia. I'm telling you folks, there's an urgency that's in my mind and heart as you do funeral after funeral. And that's this folks. Ultimately, God's rest is all that matters. Because we're all going to go the way of the earth. We're all going to die. It's so serious to think about this issue of rest and satisfaction in the Lord. Here's the big picture. The aim of life, of course, is God's rest. It is to be saved from sin. And it is to spend eternity joyfully in the restful presence of our God. Second, to enter this great joyful rest, you've got to believe the gospel. You've got to trust God. You've got to trust the good news of the gospel. We who have believed have that spiritual rest. So it is utterly indispensable. Or the utterly indispensable means of getting to heaven is believing God. They didn't know anything about Jesus in the Old Testament. Especially Joshua and Caleb. But who did they believe? They believed God. And of course, yes, it looked forward to the gospel. Had Jesus not paid the penalty, they would not be in heaven. But he did. If you read Hebrews 9, you'll see that. His blood covered the sins of the Old Testament saints as well. Isn't that awesome? But it was belief in God, the promises of God. And thus it is the same that is true for you today. What do you believe about the gospel? Well, what you believe about the gospel comes only from God's word. Therefore, they're internally and eternally joined together. Third, to believe God, to trust Him, we must hear the word, His promises, His good news. Folks, it's only the word that makes faith possible. I'm building something for you today regarding how important the word is. And finally, to keep believing the promises of God, you've got to be diligent. Is that not what it says in verse 11? Let us therefore strive. We're working at this, folks. We're not taking this for granted. We're striving. And he reminds us to be diligent. Pay attention. Don't become hard-hearted in unbelief. So this passage is designed to help us. To show us how important the Word of God is. To show us how important our great high priest is. We don't want to be like the wilderness generation. We just heard recently about Joshua Harris. We, we hear all the time about people who are abandoning the faith. Telling you folks, this is a reality. And unless you truly believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you continually believe in the word of God to confront your sin and your error so that you call out for your great high priest, I've got news for you, your faith may be in vain. And when the difficulties come, Jesus said this, Everything looks good in the sunshine. Seems like the how home is built upon the rock, but when the winds come and adversity comes and diversity, it's proven. There's manifestation that the home was not built upon the rock, but on the sifting sands of the world. You need to make sure that your faith is built on the rock. And there's only one rock. It's the Word of God as presented and the gospel in the Word of God that saves sinners through Jesus Christ. That's the answer. So i got two points this morning. Y'all ready? First, according to Hebrews chapter 4, y'all got to help me preach this, okay? you got to wake up. you got to think. Put your thinking cap on. Don't be a Beatle Bailey this morning. you got to think. you got to help me preach this sermon. There's, part, there's more than just me saying something. I'm not just a talking head disseminating language. You're a recipient to the Word. By all means, think about the soils today. 
of those who heard and it sprung up and it, it didn't make it long. And, and the world crowds out the word. You need to be someone who receives the word of God and says, I'm not going to receive, I'm not going to think about whether it's true or not, then, then decide if I'm going to receive it. No, it's the word of God. It is his word to you. First, we must enter with the word of God. Do you see this in verse 11 through 13? He underlines the seriousness of the word that is living and that is active. We're talking about divine revelation. We could say that it's the incarnation of the word in Christ, right? Because Jesus is the eternal word. The word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? We could say that, but we also say that we're speaking of the scripture. The, the word of God. And the scripture, right? This is what is meant by the adjective effective. It is the word of God. Write this down or look at the outline. God's word is living and effective. The people had a misunderstanding and a misassessment concerning the word. And that same thing is going around today when it comes to the word of God. You hear people say, well, I don't need theology. Or, or the pastor preaches too much doctrine. Why do we need to worry about doctrine? Let's not worry about theology. They say things like, don't need it, I just want Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a misguided statement. That's a bad assessment. Christ cannot be separated from the Bible. Our knowledge of Jesus Christ as the divine Son of God is accomplished only to us and given to us through revealed truth in the Word of God. It's given to us through Christ. So our knowledge of Jesus as the divine Son of God and as His accomplishment for us and what He did to procure our salvation come to us through the Scripture. We cannot have Jesus apart from the witness of the Bible. Are y'all getting that? You can't have Jesus apart from the witness of the Bible. Note these two characteristics. The Word of God is living and effective. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's highlighting the vitality of God's Word. Since God is the author... We're not dealing with a dead book, are we? We're dealing with a book and the scripture that is alive and that is effective. Throughout the Bible, we see God speaking. And thus, God is acting as he speaks. Can you think of one example of that? Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created. And we learn from that that he spoke. Even in Hebrews chapter 11, we learn that God spoke and there was action. That's what that adjective effective means. God created the heavens and the earth with His Word. The Bible is a living Word to us. It accomplishes everything that our God wills it to accomplish. As the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, returning to that great book that we've done already today, so my Word, listen to this, that comes out of my mouth, will not return to me empty. Y'all see it? But it will accomplish what I please, and, and will prosper in what I send it to do. Isaiah 55, 11. Do y'all believe that today? Amen. That the word of God is effective. That it is living and it is effective. Number two, God's word is sharper than any two-doubled, any double-edged sword. Notice what the Bible says. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow. And asserting the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's penetrating, isn't it? It's double-edged. There's no safe place on it. It's able to judge the intentions of our heart. And that highlights the invasive quality of the Word. Do you know that there's no book that can cut you like the Word? There's no book that 
knows the intentions of your heart, your thoughts, that can cut to the very marrow of the bone. Now I want to ask you a question. How do you approach the Word? We, there's a term for biblical interpretation called hermeneutics. All that means is a process of interpreting what the Bible says. So, what is your approach? Is it a humble hermeneutic of submission rather than a haughty hermeneutic that's not in submission? If you are haughty when you go to the Word, you're just reading the Bible. But if you're in submission, the Bible is reading you. And there's a major, major difference than you reading the Word and the Word of God reading you. So this is important. As you think about studying your word, the Word of God and you think about the promise even of Christ and salvation, you need to understand something. The Word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and it dis- discerns the thoughts and your very intentions of your heart. Only God's Word can do that. He uses the Word of God, our God does, like a scalpel to perform spiritual surgery, doesn't He? Think about this. In conjunction with the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God cuts. And it cuts through the sin and the darkness and into the human heart. And the goal is to restore you and make you spiritually healthy. And all of us need a doctor. All of us need the Word of God to make us healthy. Without the Word, we're as good as dead. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word. No chance of faith apart from God's Word. You know what that means. That means without the Word, we remain spiritually dead. That's why you can't say, give me Jesus, but I don't want the church. Give me Jesus, and I'm not worried about the Bible. You understand, that's why we have the situation in our world today at large. That's why transgender, homosexuality, and all these things are pervasive in our country. Understand something. Let's do a clarification. We can't expect lost people to act like saved people. Okay? I get that. But when born-again believers say those things are okay then they're not listening to the Word that is discerning, that cuts to the thoughts and the marrow. And if they say, well, that's just the way I feel, that doesn't matter. What matters is what does the Word of God say? Again, if you don't believe the Word, then you're in the mode of unbelief. This is serious, folks. It's highly serious. So God uses His Word. Without the Word, we're good as dead. It's discerning. The word judge means critic. So God's Word sifts through the seat of our personality. <laughs> Look, I may err on my discrimination or judgment of you, but God won't. Uh, he's, he's spot on every time through His Word. The seat of our human personality is hidden from all except the Word of God. Notice that. It'll tell you what's in your heart. You know, James similarly says the Word of God is like a mirror. It's very similar to this. And it functions. And it reveals who we really are. And when God exposes our condition, we are more disposed to cast ourselves upon His mercy. That's where this text is headed. Right? Folks, do you see it's only the Word of God that can lead you to Jesus? It's only God's Word coupled with His Holy Spirit that can even move you in your heart to desire to have Christ as Savior. So the Word of God is indispensable. One of these days, we're going to have to stand before this God of the Scriptures, and every one of us are going to give an account before that judgment bar. You're not going to escape that judgment bar. The Bible says here unequivocally, without hesitation, without qualification, we're all going to give an account. Everybody in here. 
Notice that phrase, we must give an account. The language here is graphic image. We're naked. We're helpless. We're exposed. You're in the grip of God whether you like it or not. You are close to His omniscient eye. And you're going to give an account. And I'm going to give an account. He cannot be fooled. Hypocrisy will not work. Playing church games will not work. God will miss. Yep, it's true. If you're a critic, you miss no good thing. But it also ought to bring terror to our hearts if we're self-righteous. Correct? If we're building everything upon self-righteousness, then we need to fear. God knows what you truly believe. Can you get that from that passage? That he knows what we truly believe? Listen, folks, eternity is at stake. What is at stake is entering God's rest. And what is the danger? It's unbelief. That's why the Word of God is so crucial. So critical. The Word penetrates to the bottom of all of our defenses. And I sense them even in this room from you right now. I sense them in my own heart as I preach this message. We, we've got our personal built-in defenses and our deceptions. But the Word of God exposes unbelief, folks. That's why we need the Word. The Word of God is living. It's active. It penetrates to the bottom of our lives. It rips off the ugly mask of our sinfulness. It helps us stop believing in the lies of the world. Don't you see, folks, that's what happens to people. They let the culture, and instead of being antithetical, instead of us going against the, the, the grain of society, we allow the culture to squeeze us into its mold, which is the JB translation of, and be not conformed to this world. It says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's what happens. You begin to believe the lies of the world, and you get away from reading your Bible. We don't even bring it to church. Hello, Tokyo. Are y'all awake? Amen. That's true. We don't carry the Bible anymore. We don't read it anymore. And maybe you are reading it on your phone. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But the fact of the matter is, folks, if we don't have the Word of God in us, you're going to sink. You will. Are we trusting the promises of God? Are we? The Word of God is living and active. Stop believing the lies of sin and start believing the promise of God. The good news of God's promise and warnings of His judgment, they're sharp enough, right? They penetrate enough to the bottom of our heart to show me the lies of sin and to show me that they're indeed lies. You've heard the word, haven't you? It's told you what is truly valuable and what is truly worth trusting. Now I want to remind you, according to this text, God's gaze is upon you and it will all be exposed. That's not just the preacher's words, that's God's words in this passage. Do you see how critical the word is? All right, let's move to the second point. We must remember our sinless high priest. Don't you love this? Beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's stop there for a moment. In order to fully understand the truths of chapter 4, you've got to go back to chapter 2. And that's what's so dangerous about dropping into any context without preaching the whole book. Now, you may be tired after about 20 years from now when I'm still standing up here preaching books of the Bible. But, folks, it's, it's so vitally important that we get the Bible in its context, that we preach it book by book. That's the way it was written, chapter by chapter, phrase by phrase. Why? Because that's the way God gave it to us. But if you're going to really understand the nature of his high priestly function, you've got to go back to chapter 2. Okay, I, I'm assuming that you know Hebrews 2. Is that a bad assumption? Is that a bad assessment? Well, he's returning to the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. That in order to truly identify with us, he had to become like we are. 
right? In our flesh. So Jesus had to be made, chapter 2, like his brothers and sisters in every respect, that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He did this in order to make propitiation for our sins. Here's the way to fight unbelief and get through hard times. you got to hold on to your confession in Jesus Christ. No amens? Are you not doing that? Are you not holding on to your confession in Christ Jesus? You hold on to and confess Jesus who did everything to secure your very salvation. If you say, if you're saved, he is your personal high priest. You don't need to go down to the Catholic Church. There's only one high priest today, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty. He's the only mediator between God and man. That other priest, any other priest, is a sinner, just like you are, but not the Son of God. That's so vitally important. First, he's the right person. I'm already preaching that point. Am I? Am I not? He's the right person. He's the Son of God, the Messiah. And the reason we struggle with this, the high priest notion, is because we're not real familiar with really what a high priest is or what it was. But the main thing that they did, the number one thing, well, let's say this. In the religious system of the Old Testament, this was the number one dude. Right? There's no question about it. There were various levels and different orders in Judaism, but there's only one high priest. His chief job was to represent the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. On that day, he would go behind a thick veil. And that veil was separated, which separated the holy place from the most holy place. And there, what would he do? He would take the blood of a goat, and he would offer it upon the golden mercy seat that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. When the blood was offered, as our God prescribed it, the sins of the people were atoned for. They were covered by the blood for one more year. Right? Leviticus 16. That system was never meant to last forever. That system was a shadow of a great substance. And that substance was the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. It was never meant to, be perf- uh, never meant to go forever. How often did that high priest have to repeat the sacrifice? Every year. Every year. And once that high priest died, what happened? They replaced him with another. They continually offered it year after year after year. Now that Christ has come, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is absolutely abolished. It's abolished. Christ has become our high priest. He's passed into the heavenly sanctuary and sprinkled his blood on the very throne and seat of the Lord God. Isn't that awesome? And he's invisible to you, just as the high priest in the Old Testament was invisible when he went behind the curtain. But Christ's sacrifice never again has to be repeated. You ought to thank the Lord that Christ made a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. If you want to see that extrapolated, read Hebrews chapter 10. Isn't it awesome to think about that once-for-all sacrifice? Through his death on the cross, he made a complete and final atonement for our sins. Check this out. Past, present, and future. All of your sins are paid for. Hallelujah! Right? All of them. Past, present, and future sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. He made final and full atonement. He's the right person, I think, to hear our prayers. He's he's entered the Holy of Holies. He, 
This, you know this is the first time the writer actually calls him Jesus? That's interesting. That's very interesting because the writer's building his case. That the Son of God, the Messiah, Christ, his name is Jesus. So historically, it's important that you believe the Jesus of the Bible, not of your own making. That's the confession we make. He's the right person. But he also has the right past. Verse 15 demonstrates the sinless nature of Christ's high priesthood. Now, some things we kind of feel like, theologically, it's kind of deep. And we kind of, maybe you feel like that today. I'm kind of soaring over your head. But here's the deal. Is this not tangible or what? You want something tangible for your theology today? Here it is. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I don't know how y'all feel about that. Somebody needs to be sympathetic about my situation. And unless you're super spiritual and you've never sinned, then you need a sympathetic high priest too. And I can go ahead and let you on a little secret. You have sinned. You are a sinner. And you need sympathy from our great high priest. That's tangible to me. I know me. And I really know you. Right? There's no question about that either because the Bible tells us something about ourselves even in this text. You see it? But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. You know who that is? That's you and me. We've all been tempted, have we not? Sure we have. We've gone further than tempted. We've sinned. But yet the Bible says he was without sin. He has the right past. Mm. Did you know that Jesus could not have fully identified with us and fulfilled his ministry of propitiating our sin if he had not also identified with us in our temptations? Yet he remained sinless. That's awesome to think about. Now, what distinguishes temptation from sin? Well, if the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, doesn't that logically assume that it's possible to be tempted and not sin? Hello? Does it not? After all, if temptation itself were a sin, we would have no sinless Savior. But you do. What is temptation? Well, small, easy sense. It is the enticement to wrongdoing that confronts us every single day. We all can readily list the graphic sins or graphic, let's say graphic forms of temptation right now. You could spit them out. The temptation to sin sexually at an all-time high in church life, whether it's girls and boys participating in sex before marriage, which is a sin according to the Bible, I told you to help me here. Right? Whatever that sin may be, sexually, they're sins. They're promiscuity. Doesn't care, I don't care what the society says about relativism. The Bible, again, are we believing the Word or not? We're believing the Word. The sharpening two-edged sword. So we understand sexual sins. What about elevating yourself over others? Does that happen in the church? No, not first Baptist. Surely not. Jealousy, envy, it happens in the church, right? It does. How about stealing and cheating? How about lashing out in anger? How about you knucklehead men this week in your family? Maybe knuckleheaded women, right? Maybe knuckleheaded pastor, right? We lash out. But I want to remind you, that's the graphic forms. We see those, right? But what about the basic forms of temptation? We learn actually that even eating can be a temptation 
if, sat, if satisfying physical hunger, hunger results in disobedience to God. Man, Jesus will just mess up your world, won't he? When he begins to start enumerating these things, uh, man, those graphic forms, yes, we see that. But, but what about the basic forms of temptation? We're told to go to Christ when we are tempted. Y'all see this, folks? Because he was the only one who was tempted in every way common to humanity and yet did not sin. There's this misnomer thing going around that, well, Jesus Christ was God. Therefore, he wasn't tempted like we were. To understand truly the humanity of Christ, you have to understand that he was totally human just like you. And in his humanity, we don't know what it's like to stand against temptation. Because you give in in a minute. But Jesus never gave in. We will never understand the height of what he did to say no to temptation that led to sin. You understand how awesome that is. Every one of you men looking around so pious, you know when you've crossed that line from a look of attraction to a look of lustful thoughts. Jesus never crossed that line. Do y'all find that amazing? You better if you're a human being. Yes, he never one time crossed that line. He never let that first glance of initial attraction move to cross over that line of lustful thoughts. When you find yourself in that situation, we need to run to Jesus. Right? God, you had that same temptation. And yet you did not sin. Help me, Lord. Right? Be merciful to me. I'll admit to you folks, I'm all man. I don't make any bones about it. That's one good thing about David. We see about David. That guy was a scoundrel at times, but he had a, he had a heart after God. And listen, you need to be honest with God with your temptations. Look, folks, according to this text, he is the only one that can help you. And we need his help. We need to cry out to him. And look, Jesus heightens that awareness, does he not? It's one thing to commit physical adultery. It's a sin against God. But Jesus said you could even commit it in your heart. And when you do, it's still called adultery. Man, does that not turn the mirror of the word of God upon our hearts? Never once did Jesus permit temptation to become sin in his heart, in his thoughts, or in his actions. Thus, what do we know about temptation? That thus temptation that resists or rejects sin falls short of sin. Isn't that good news? While temptation that gives over to sin is sin. So he's exhorting us to go to Jesus Christ, the only high priest who can deliver us from temptation. Did you ever know that Jesus can deliver you from temptation? Have you ever read that? Well, you have now. And the Word of God has spoken to your heart because it's the truth and it cuts and it divides. Christ's priestly ministry promises that those who know Christ, that temptation will never ultimately triumph over us. Isn't that awesome? That if you're truly in Christ Jesus and you had a belief in Him and you trusted Jesus only, man, don't you get tired of temptation in this world? Man, don't you think that's what Paul meant when he said, God, who can deliver me from this awful body of flesh? You ever just get tired of temptation? One of these days, glory, hallelujah, there won't even be the presence of sin in glory. That would be awesome. C.S. Lewis said this about temptation. And how good it is to know that he was tempted just like we are. The text means, I quote, that Jesus faced every kind of temptation we can face. 
basically every temptation falls into three categories. You know what he's going to say? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I want to remind you that's the same thing going on in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. Right? Jesus defeated the devil in those three areas. Where we failed, think about this, folks. He succeeded. That's hope for me. Right? Where he gave in, Jesus stood strong. Where we collapsed under pressure, Jesus obeyed his Father. Where he was tempted, yet he never sinned by giving in. We pray. We don't have to, when we pray, we don't have to worry that we will somehow shock him. He's heard it all, and he's seen it all. We can go ahead and be totally honest about temptation, totally honest about sins. He knows about them before you ever tell him. Right? Because Jesus knows how sinful we are, we don't have to play games when we pray. We all heard, you know the model, ACTS, Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Boy, we're, we're quick about skipping confession, aren't we? But we shouldn't. You got something to confess just about every minute of every day. That's, that's right, brother. I had one amen, but it was a distinct one, wasn't it? Amen. All right, finally, let's get this thing over. So some of you are saying, preacher, I've had enough of this, right? He is in the right place. Notice the text. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Y'all know that's where Christ is, right? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because our great high priest who intercedes for us and on our behalf, our sympathetic high priest, is at the throne of God, we ought to have confidence. Because of Jesus, right? The throne of God's justice is now a throne of grace. Some of us have the wrong understanding of the throne of grace when it comes to praying. We kind of feel like God's throne is something like the principal's office in high school. Did you ever have to go there? I mean, kids went in that place and never came out. Right? <laughs> Here's what I learned. You go behind them doors, something bad. It's about to happen. And we did a funeral this week, like on Thursday, of my favorite principal in all the world. He was 90 years old. Bivocational pastor and principal. Loved Jesus. Missionary to Ethiopia. When Mr. Creason's voice rang down that hallway, you stopped in your tracks. No running in the hall, young man. Son. He had this amazing voice. But I didn't want to go see that rascal. I'm telling you what. I had to go to his office once because a boy was sitting on my rock that I said was my rock and I knocked him off. <laughs> and I went to the office. And man, I'm telling you what put the fear of God in me to go see him. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, God's throne is a throne of immeasurable grace. You don't have to fear going there, right? Because your sympathetic high priest is there. The Father doesn't have to look far to the sacrifice. He's seated at His right hand. The Father doesn't have to look far to see the Son of God, the one who paid the penalty for your sin and mine. He's seated at His... If anybody has the ear of the Father, it's the Son. Aren't you thankful that He's interceding for you? One of the primary means of eternal security is the fact that Jesus intercedes for you without ceasing. There's no way possible you can lose your salvation when the Son of God who paid the penalty of your sin is interceding with you for you without fail every day, every minute, all the time. 
You're going to get there, folks. You're going to cross home base as long as you believed. But it's highly possible this morning that many of you have not believed. You hadn't believed in the only Son of God. Remember those words. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but through the world that the world through Him might be saved. Why? Because the world was condemned already. Because it says those who believe not are already condemned. They're in a place of unbelief. I love to watch football games. Man, I like that crisp, cool day. And you can go out and watch a football game. One of my favorite people in the world is Coach Pete Rich. I learned something about Coach when I was there. I actually lifted weights with him back in Alabama about a week ago. Just sat with, he sat with me and watched me. He's 84 while I lifted weights. But don't miss it. This guy still gets up every morning at 4.30 and lifts weights. He's 84. Some of you guys need to listen to that, right? 84 years old. But he is in the uh, High School Football Hall of Fame. And he has a card that allows him to get in any high school football game in the state of Alabama for free. He actually has two of them. That's why I went with him. The card has to be used boldly in order to do him any good. If he doesn't use the card... He must just pay the general fee like the general public does. Otherwise, the privileges that are his will go unused. I want to remind you that God has given to every Christian a card that says admit to the throne room of heaven. And that card is stamped with the blood of Jesus. Anytime, anywhere, at any moment, you can go to him because of Jesus. The scriptures would have me believe that I should be preoccupied with my own unbelief all the days of my life and my own propensity to do evil and to sin. And that's not only true with me, it's true with you. The Bible would have us to have that kind of concerted effort to look at our own lives. But I want to remind you this is an encouraging text for us to look around at others, back to our first analogy, who may be running around first base but they're hobbled. Ah. <sighs> We have a responsibility for one another. You do. Wives, you got a responsibility to your husband that he is in a continual state of belief in the gospel. That he's allowing the word of God to cut him. That he's allowing the word to teach him how to live and not the culture in the world. We're responsible, men to wives. Brothers and sisters in this church, if we thought more about the propensity of unbelief and sin and evil that's easily in our hearts, then we would probably think less about us getting our prominent place or how we can look down on others. When we really start to think about the propensity of this text, look, it says, let us strive. doesn't mean you can lose your salvation, folks. Get that out of your mind. You're preserved by the king if you're saved. The problem is, have you believed? What kind of belief do you have? Think about that again. Here's Joshua and Caleb. Man, they've obeyed God and they've gone over into the land and they've looked at the land and they come back and they say to the people, man, it's an awesome land. Just like God told us. He told us in the Word that it was an awesome land. And we saw it. We have seen it. And it's an awesome land. And yeah, there's some giants there. As a matter of fact, we look like grasshoppers. I could preach on the grasshopper syndrome, right? But here's the deal. They say to the people, God told us it was our land. 
And we, by faith, believed the promise of God. But they were the only ones that did. Man, I'm up here today telling you folks, go with me. Right? Is that not what Josh and Caleb said? Go with us. We believe it. Praise God for two saints like Joshua and Caleb who believed the good report. Have you believed the report about Jesus? Do you believe that he's the only way to heaven? Well, that's what God said. I hope you believe it. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I've preached this passage. I know it's a lot. Lord, I know it was just a lot of thoughts, a lot of things. But Lord, just burning in my heart this week, looking at the landscape of our country, Christianity as a whole, God, I'm encouraged to encourage others to avoid unbelief, to put their faith in Jesus. Oh God, what a tragedy to think that church life, coming to church, giving a tithe or anything like that could buy our way to heaven. Lord, what the Word does is penetrates us to show us our sin so that we run to Jesus. We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. Lord, help us to cling to you, our great high priest. That's where we find our rest. Our rest is in Jesus. It's through the Word pointing us to Christ, conforming us to His image, resting in Jesus. God, help us to do that every day until we cross that home base and we are forever in Your presence. God, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.